0: 2 Kings chapter 22, 2 Kings chapter 22, and I'm just going to read probably two verses here, and we're going to spend a little time out of a great character in the Old Testament. Used to be my favorite king. He is, uh, he's still up there. He's not my total favorite, but he's one of my favorite kings. 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. I want you to wrap your head around that. Eight years old. Nolan, how old are you? Where's Nolan? I saw him. Nolan? Hey, pay attention. Pastor's up here preaching. He's six. Six years old. Is that true? (laughs) All right, good. This is a good start. Josiah was about Nolan's age, a little older than Nolan. Eight years old and began to reign. He reigned 30, 30 and one years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedediah, the daughter of Adaiah of Boscath. And it says, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And I want to preach this morning about Josiah's revival. I want to talk about Josiah's revival. Jesus, we thank you, Lord. We're here in the house of God, gathered together with the people of God. The greatest hope, Jesus, in all of this world, that all of us could have is first of all in you. The greatest hope that our community could ever know, Lord, is, oh God, an apostolic, powerful revival that would shake this city and community to its core, that would shake our, our liberal state our state that's so mixed up and messed up, God, our country that, that, that needs so much help and hope, that are being played by the devil. We've got to have a revival, Lord, and I pray, talk to us out of Josiah's life. Anoint our hearts and teach us and help us to glean out of this scripture and the word of God the lessons that you have for us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. You can not be seated if you're going to preach with me. If you're not going to preach with me, just keep on standing. At least we'll know who you are. That was a bad attempt at humor. (laughs) Josiah, great king in the Old Testament, tremendous king. Yet the unique thing I find about him as you dig a little bit into his immediate life as well as his predecessors, his posterity, those that preceded him, you would think probably he came out of, you know, a great line and a great lineage. Certainly his father and his grandfather. For him to be The great king that he was must have been a result of his upbringing, must have been a result of his family. He must have had a great family, great father, you know, great grandfather. And all of these things are obviously positive things, and they're tremendous influences in life. And yet in this young king's life, this young man, his father and his grandfather were both rebels. They were rapscallions. They were, I mean, bottom of the barrel. They were wicked, wicked men. His grandfather, as we read about him in the Old Testament, his name was Manasseh. His grandfather had the illustrious reputation of being a child murderer. He was a murderer. They would take their children, they would offer them and sacrifice to false gods, to a god named Molech, and Molech was a great big metal god that had outstretched arms, and in the back of that metal god, they would, they would form a fire, and that fire would get red hot until that fire burned so strongly that it heated, heated up that molten god, Molech. And they would beat their drums, and they would play their flutes, and they would, they would play them as loud as they could to overcome the sound of the screams of the children that rolled down the arms of that false god into the belly of Molech. And that was Manasseh's doing. That was was Josiah's grandfather. They sacrificed their infant sons and daughters to false gods. Manasseh made graven images. He had groves, which they were places they built on high hills and places they built and put their false gods, and they would travel to them. And Manasseh encouraged the worship of false gods, and it was a terrible place. The country was in terrible condition polluted the sanctuary by bringing junk into the church for false worship until the Bible says of Manasseh that he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And the scripture says of him that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. To make matters even worse, he was involved in witchcraft and sorcery. The Bible lays testimony of a wicked and evil king who it says got to a point where he literally The scripture says, provoked God to anger. I'm telling you, that's a bad place to be when you tick God off. You tick God off, you're going to be in trouble. The Bible says in all of this stuff that he did, and in his case, uniquely, it wasn't a month or a year, five years or a decade. It was 55 years of wicked leadership in Manasseh's life. And the nut didn't fall far from the tree when he had a boy whose name was Ammon. And Manasseh's son Ammon, the Bible says of him that he was equally a wicked man before the Lord. Can you imagine the fury of God against both of these wicked leaders? The Bible says in 2 Kings 21 and 20 of Ammon that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh did. In fact, the difference between his daddy Manasseh and him, his daddy ruled for 55 years. Ammon, the Bible says, only ruled for two years because the people hated him so bad and were so sick of his his lousy leadership that the Bible says that Ammon's own uh, servants rose up. And the Bible says that his servants rose up after two years on the throne and his servants killed King Ammon. Now... This is Josiah's daddy, and it was his granddaddy. Can you imagine the terrible, traumatizing childhood that Josiah had? He didn't have a lot of wonderful memories of being together with his father and his grandfather. The memories that he had was of a wicked dad that ultimately was was murdered. Can you imagine the traumatizing, traumatic impact that must have had on this young king? I did a Bible study one time, and in this Bible study, I was in this young man's house. It's probably about 30 years ago, and in the house, I'm teaching him the Word of God, and he was a troubled young man, mixed-up young man. And as I'm teaching the Bible study, he said, yeah, in this house here, he said, uh, my father killed my mother in this house here. There's no wonder why he was such a troubled young man. He'd witnessed that. He'd witnessed his father killing his, his mother, and that But can you imagine in Josiah's psyche, in his mind, him knowing that his own father had been brutally murdered as a result of how horrible of a person that he was? These were the main role models in Josiah's young life. His grandpa was a horrible idolater. His dad was, was, was as bad, if not worse, and was killed as a result. These were the main men in Josiah's life. So the natural question that I would have for all of us here this morning, so given the fact that his dad is wicked, his granddad is wicked, that's all that he had ever known, did he do as Ammon, his father, and Manasseh, his grandfather, had done? Did Josiah, did did he himself repeat the generational cycle? I think it's high time for America to kind of wake up a little bit. Yeah, it's time for America to wake up. It's time for the people of America to wake up. Because, and I'm I'm not gonna get political, I'm gonna really work hard at not getting political. I'm not gonna get political, but I will probably address some things politically in our culture today. Because you know what? There's all these systemic things that we're talking about, all these things that, that were done generations ago. Can I tell you on this Sunday morning, it doesn't matter the kind of upbringing that you had in your life. You do not have to be the byproduct of the way that you were raised. It is not an excuse. You don't have to say, I am the way that I am, I guess, just because my, my dad was this way, or my mom was this way, or I was raised by a pack of wolves, and the reason I am the way that I am is just, you know, because this is the way that I was raised. Some say it's not possible to change. Some say if your father was immoral or your mother was brutalizing or any of that, that somehow or another, that you've got to become that. I've come to preach on this Sunday morning that you do not have to be a product of your childhood. You do not have to be a product of your upbringing. Fatherlessness is not an excuse to be a loser or to be a criminal. Well, I just can't help myself. This was how I was raised. This is what I've got to be. You don't have to be a byproduct of a bad home. Thank God we can rise above our childhood. Thank God we can rise above some of the negative things that maybe even happened to us as children. And I thank God for that hope on this Sunday morning, because Josiah was just that kind of a man. He was just that kind of a man. Reminds me of the terrible alcoholic. He was a terrible, terrible alcoholic. He was so terrible that his alcoholism would drive him into fits of rage. And so when he would come home at night, his children that were there would be underneath his wrath. He would beat on them. He would abuse them. And... Alcohol did terrible things to him and his children and his family, and so he had two boys, and one of those boys, as he got older, he started drinking alcohol, and he became an addict, and he abused his own family. And they asked him, they said, well, how, how, come, how, come, how come you act like that? And he said, well, because my dad was an alcoholic. The other son, though, uniquely, he went to university, went to college, got an education, got a great job, met a a wonderful woman. They got married, had children, raised those children, had an amazing, happy home. And they asked that other brother, they said, well, how come you turned out as good as you did? He said, because my dad was an alcoholic. How come you're not an alcoholic? Because my dad was an alcoholic. Same home, same father, same conditions, different outcome. You do not have to be what your family has maybe been. One of the greatest examples we have here in the Bible, it blows my mind, we read about him. There was a tremendous national revival that happened underneath Josiah's leadership and underneath of his leadership and all these wonderful things that happened and came out of his life. He had a terrible father and he had a terrible grandfather, but he made up his mind. I tell you what I'm going to do, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to please the Lord. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm not going to be the byproduct of my father and my family. I'm going to be something different. I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to be what my father wasn't and my grandfather wasn't. I'm going to be what God wants me to be. I'm going to be what God wants me to be. Chronicles 34 and 1 says Josiah was 8 years old when he began to reign. Think about that with me. Oh dear Jesus history of our nation in the hands of an eight-year-old. Huh? Think about it. All you Sunday school teachers, what you're doing matters. Come on, all you parents, raising your kids in godliness, holiness, and righteousness to walk with, serve, and love God. Come on, it matters. The Bible says this, this young man is only eight years old. Eight years old. Because sometimes... And most of the time, what our children will become as adults is in seed form when they're very young. That's why we ought to have high expectations for our children. We ought to have high expectations for our children. There's a phrase I heard a long time ago. I didn't really like it when it was said. Oh, boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. In other words, people are just gonna, the kids are just going to do stupid stuff. Now, we know kids do stupid stuff. Amen? We know that. But I think the last thing that we ought to do is make an excuse and just say, yeah, I guess our kids are just going to do stupid stuff. I think we ought to have high expectations for our kids. No excuses. I think we ought to have great expectations that they can do something for God, that they can live a life that's blessed by God. Because my Bible tells me right here, Josiah was eight years old. Eight years old. And so this morning, now this crowd, I've got a few more young people I can preach to because the last crowd was a lot of our seasoned saints. I'm preaching to our young people this morning. Come on, young people, while you're young, live for God, serve God, give your life to the Lord. While you're young, dedicate, consecrate, commit yourself to God and the work of God. Come on, I'm preaching to our young people. Change the world, young people. Do something for God while you're young. Well, when I get old, like my parents, when they're like 41 years old, when I get old, I'll do something for God. When I'm 35 years old, when I'm as old as my youth leaders, I'll do something for God. Don't wait until you're old to do something for God. Do something for God now. Come on, commit yourself while you're young to God and the things of God. Commit yourself while you're young. In fact, I'm going to say this, that the world has been changed by young people. It has been changed by young people. Your world was forever changed when the simple words were made famous. And I quote, Watson, come here, please. The reason they were famous was because they were transmitted over the very first telephone. In case you didn't know what that is, this is a cellular phone. A telephone, co- uh, phone, telephone had a cord that was attached to it. It had a cord. Some of you don't even know what that is. Some of them had a rotary dial. Right? Right? This world-changing invention came out of the life of the grand old aged 29-year-old Alexander Graham Bell. And this was the peak and the highlight of his famous career. Two American brothers were inducted into the Hall of Fame for famous Americans after their world-changing flying machine took off at Kitty Hawk on December the 17th of 1903. Their name, the Wright brothers. They were extremely aged with Orville being 32 years old. This was a high watermark of his life all at 32 years of age. You probably came to church this morning cruising into this parking lot in an automobile unless you happen to have a horse and buggy. The auto that you came rolling into this parking lot with was invented by a man who at 30 years of age built the first gasoline engine. All of that at the crusty old age of 30 years old, Henry Ford. At 27, Napoleon conquered Italy and was recognized the foremost commander of any age, 27 years old. Evangelist Charles Spurgeon built the famed Metropolitan Tabernacle in London at 27 years of age, a 10,000-seat auditorium preaching. They said he was an old head upon young shoulders, 27 years old. And he's leading a great church because society and history teach us that scientifically, militarily, politically, musically, and spiritually, the world has been changed by people under 30 years of age. Our great Savior Jesus Christ began his ministry at 30 years old and was complete at 33 and a half years of age. He was done. What are you saying? I'm saying, come on, young people, give God the best years of your life. Come on, give God the best years of your life. Don't give your best years of your life to the world. Don't give the best years of your life to your flesh or the devil. Give God the best years of your life. These are the best years of your life, young people. Come on, I'm talking about praying, young people. Fasting, young people. Evangelizing, young people. Holy, young people. Young people that are giving their lives to the work of God. There is nothing more vital and important. We need a revival of young men and young women it's about revival. And Josiah shows us that one young person can literally change a nation. What was his testimony in verse number 2? The Bible says in verse number 2, notice what it says, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of Ammon his father. He walked in the way of Ammon his father. Wait a second. Walking in the way of David his father. I thought Ammon was his father. Ammon was his father. Sometimes you're going to have to do like some serious legwork maybe to go into your family tree. And maybe you you go back, you know, generations and you got horse thieves that are in your family tree. But I tell you what Josiah did. Josiah said, I'm going to keep on reaching because I got to find me an example. I got to find me an example. I can't find it. My dad... I can't find it my granddad. i got to find an example of somebody that's godly. i got to find me an example. What in the world puts that into the heart and the mind of an 8-year-old? Come on. I think we ought to, we ought to treat our 8-year-old children seriously. We ought, we ought to treat that seriously. Because percolating within the heart and the mind of this young 8-year-old, now king... This eight-year-old king, something inside of him is saying, i got to find me a role model. And guess what? i got to go way back. But there's a man who was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. He served God. He followed God. He worked for God. He loved the Word of God. He sang songs to God. He worshipped God. He was a good man. And if I'm going to find myself an example, I'm going to find an example like David that was a good, godly man that I can follow after. And the Bible says that when he did that, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. I'm telling you, the way that our kids act, it matters. The way that our children act, it matters. You say, well, six years old, I don't know that that makes all that big of a difference. How my kids act at six years old, I don't know that it makes all that big of a difference. How my kids act at eight years old does it make all that big of a difference. It makes all the difference in the world. Because sitting on the throne of Israel, leading an entire nation. Nolan, you want to come up here and help me? Well, you're sure dressed like you're ready to preach. Come on now. Come on up here, buddy. All right, why don't you sit? We have King Nolan. King Josiah. Can you sit here just for a minute? It's okay. You're in control, man. You're the king. All these people got to listen to you. (laughs) He's like, finally, what I've been waiting for. He's eight years old. He's sitting on the throne, and yet the Bible says of him, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. I'm telling you, God's eyes are open on the young and on the old. God's eyes are open on the eight-year-old. And the testimony of this eight year old is that this eight year old did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. How often do we blow off what our children do? Or how often does society say, oh, it doesn't matter? I'm telling you, the way that our kids act uh, and that they follow the ways of God while they're young, it matters. Because within the heart of this young man was leadership that was going to change a nation. And God was taking note, He was paying attention that there was a young man that was sitting on the throne that He'd given authority to that did that which was right right in the sight of the Lord and God said I'm going to bless this young man and I'm going to anoint this young man because here's somebody that does the right thing. I want our young people to know that it's still good to be good. I want our young people to know it's still right to do right. You may show up at school and they may make fun of you and call you goody two shoes or that's probably what they did in my day. I don't know what they do in your day. They may call you funny names and say, oh, you just think you're all this and you're all that. No, but you've you got to make up your mind while you're young, children, that I'm going to do the right thing before God. I'm going to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. Thank you, Nolan. I'm done with you. You kind of getting used to that, weren't you? Now, Nolan, when you go home, though, no, you're not king at home. Just I want to... Not yet. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Second Chronicles 34 and 3 says, in the eighth year of his reign. So how old is he now in the eighth year of his reign? 2 Chronicles 34 and 3. While he was yet young. So 16 years old. Who do we have in the church of 16? Luke. Luke is 15, he's close. You going to help me, Luke? Come on, man. Wake up. Get with it, buddy. Come on, man. Set on up here. That 8-year-old now becomes a 16-year-old. He Becomes a 16-year-old. They get their license at 16 years old. That's scary. Get off the sidewalks. What does it say? He began to seek after the God of David, his father. He began, the Bible says, by doing the right thing. And now at 16, after doing the right thing, having a conscientious heart within him, something began to percolate within him that said, you know what? I got I to have a prayer life. They're quieter than the 9 o'clock service. It's kind of weird. Just, I'm used to it. I mean, Dear Reverend here back and forth, it's always different. It's just weird. Sixteen years old, right? He says, I've got to get a walk with God. I've got to begin to seek after the Lord. And something happened within that 16-year-old Josiah the king that said, I've got to start fasting. I've got to start praying. I've I've got to get a walk with God. Some people walk with God, and some people walk with people that walk with God. And he realized it's not enough for me to have a relationship with the priest or the prophet or the preacher. But he realized I've got to have a relationship with God for myself. And I'm talking about revival here this morning. And Josiah, revival began to percolate within his heart. And he said, I'm, I'm going to seek after God. I've got to begin to pray. Come on, I'm, I'm confident enough today to know that God's doing something within the heart of young people and stirring young people with a desire to have a walk with God in prayer. In fact, revival begins with doing the right thing, number one. And number two, saying, I'm going to get me a walk with God. I'm going to begin to seek after the Lord. And he's 16 years old. Thank you, Luke. Is that an amen? 2 Chronicles 34 and 3. In the eighth year of his reign... When he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of his father. In the 12th year, he began to purge Judah. 12th year, so how old is he now? 20 years old. Logan, come on up here, man. You're 20. That eight year old becomes a 16 year old. That 16 year old, oh, Jesus, help us. Probably you're going to be taller than I am sitting down. 20 years old. 20 years old. Eight years old, he's got eight years. He's doing right. He's walking right. He's doing what God wants him to do. He's living obedience. 16 years old, he gets a prayer life. He gets a walk with God. And let me tell you what happens. You get a prayer life, and the way you estimate things begins to change. The way you look at things begin to change. What you used to tolerate, you don't tolerate anymore when you get a walk with God. The things that used to impress you, they don't impress you as much anymore. Because watch what it says. When he's 20, 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, and the groves, and the carved images, and the molten images. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence, and the images that were on high above them he cut down, and the groves, and the carved images, molten images he break in pieces, made dust of them, and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. He burnt the bones of the priests. That's pretty hardcore. Upon the altars and cleansed Jude and Jerusalem, so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali with their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaded the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all of the land, he returned to Jerusalem. What happened? He walks with God at eight years old. He does what's right. At 16, he gets a prayer life. And at 20, he starts to get radical for God because if you pray long enough and you do the right thing and you got righteousness in your guts and you're seeking after God all of a sudden something starts to happen that's radical inside of your heart and when you start praying it's going to change you when a 16 year old gets a prayer life it starts to change you and something inside says things have to change they can't continue to be the way they've always been things are going to have to get better and a 20 year old Josiah begins to go through the land tearing down strongholds tearing down unrighteousness saying something's got to happen in my nation, something's got to take place, we've got to have a revival that's going to honor Jehovah thank you 20 years old tearing down all the high places Focusing the people on exclusive loyalty to God. Getting rid of all the competing distractions. Cleansing the nation. I want to remind this church on this Sunday morning that living right still matters for God. Fornicators need to stop fornicating. Porn needs to come off of the phones. Come on, language changes when you start living for God. Needles, bowls, and bongs get forever thrown away. The Spotify playlist begins to change. Come on, all that stuff. Josiah walks through the land and says, It's time to clean things up because we're fixing to have a revival. God wants to bring revival to our nation, He wants to change our nation. And there was a series of steps that He went through progressively. Number one, at eight years old, doing that, which is right in the sight of the Lord. Sixteen years old, he's getting prayer life. Twenty years old, he begins to purge Jerusalem. And then that brings us to 2 Kings 22 and 3. And it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. The 18th year of his reign. So how old is he now? He's 26 years old. 26. Blake is 24. He's close. Come on up here, King Josiah. He's a little bit shorter than the other King Josiah. <laughs> Watch. He's 26 years old. It came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver. He, uh, he had a building fund. We still have a building fund, by the way. Which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the house. Amen, Tim? And let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. Because up until this point, the temple, people had just they checked out. They weren't going to church. The temple had six inches of dust, it was dirty. It had broken down parts to it. And all of a sudden, Josiah, he begins to pray. He begins to seek God. He purges the, the nation. we got to get sin out of our nation. Then he begins to focus on the church. He focuses on the house of God. He collected money, and he gave that money, verse 6, unto carpenters and builders and masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. He said, we got to fix the church up. we got to have some repairs in the church. If he had a hat, he would have had a mega hat. It had a little star of David on it, maybe the color blue, and it would have said MIGA. And you know what that means? Make Israel great again. We gotta make Israel great again. And if we're ever gonna, I feel my Holy Ghost help. If we're ever gonna make Israel great again, then the church has got to be properly taken care of. If we're ever gonna have a revival, then church has got to be central. That the things of God have got to be centered on. They're important. They're vital. This isn't just an extra. We've got to get to cleaning that church up. we got to make sure that the doors uh, are swinging on their hinges properly. It needs a fresh coat of paint. We need to clear that thing out. The altar needs to be in its proper perspective. Raising labor's got to be in its proper perspective because the Ark of the Covenant's beyond that inner veil. And that Ark of the Covenant represents the glory of God. And we've got to be respectful about the house of God. If we're going to have a revival, we got to clean up the house of God. And at 26 years of age, Josiah said, Come on, let's get the church back the way that it needs to be. Come on, let's get the church first and foremost. Uh, let's put it all together in a wonderful way. Let's organize it. Let's administrate it. Let's take care of it. Let's make sure that it's all brought together because God's going to bring a revival and he's worthy of that and we got to get things in order in the temple of God. He focused on making God's church better. All right, thank you. 26-year-old. So, it brings us to our core. What was the catalyst for this Revival. Everything built itself up to this point in time in the Scripture. 26-year-old King Josiah cleans up the house of God, purges Judah and Jerusalem. The Bible says in verse number 10, And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. What are you talking about? As they began to clean up the house of God... Way back in a corner of the temple somewhere, covered probably in six inches of dust, commentators believe it was the book of Deuteronomy. It was a lost book of the law, the word of God that had been forgotten about in the nation. The king didn't know anything about it. But when he set his heart to begin to seek after God, and he purged the nation, and he got a prayer life, and refocused on the church, they started working on the temple and cleaning up the temple. Those carpenters and those workers, and specifically the priest, he's going through the back of the temple, and all of a sudden he digs out from underneath a board of wood. There's an old book, and he opens that book up, and he realizes, Oh, my dear God. This is the Word of God. This is none other than the Word of God. What are you saying? I'm saying that when we begin to focus on the kingdom of God and focus on the purpose of God, then revelation comes from God. Revelation comes from God. We can't know God's will without God's Word. We can't know God's desires without God's word, but as this man initiated a revival in his nation and they began to clean things up, the word of God found its central place again where it needed to be. You say, well, what was Josiah's response to that? Years of seeking after God, years of a pure heart from the time he's eight years old. What was his response? And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law... He rent his clothes. He tore his clothes. He said, my God, we're sinning against the Lord. We're not where we need to be. Revelation has been brought forward from the word of God, and we're not living the way that God wants us to live. Verse 12, And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahiakim the son of Shapham, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, 13, he said, go ye inquire of the Lord for me and for, for the people and for Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. Notice what he says, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. He's saying, oh God, we're in trouble because we haven't had this revelation. And now that we have the insight that comes from the book, from the word of God, we're not where we need to be. Notice verse number 18. Where did this revival come from? A prophet is sent to Josiah. But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him. This was a word from God to Josiah. Are you ready? Come on, put your hands together. Let's worship God. Oh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. All of his life consolidates into this singular moment when revival breaks forth in the land. What was the catalyst for revival? The prophet comes to Josiah and says, send that word to the man that came asking. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard. Verse 19, because thine heart was tender, And thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord when thou heardest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes, and wept before me. God said, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. What was Josiah's core? Of his success. What drove his per- passionate pursuit? What brought revival to him. And to the land of Israel. He said because thine heart was tender. Josiah's heart was tender. What does that teach us about Josiah's revival? If you want to know something about revival. Let me tell you where revival can be found. Revival is found in in the heart. Revival is found in the heart. It's what happens in the heart that brings revival. God is concerned what is in our heart. What's in this heart of mine? What's in this heart of mine? Because a heart that is dedicated and pure and desirous of God, revival comes from the heart. It's in the heart. Revival is a result of the heart. Every great king in the Bible was a person that had a great heart. Josiah, Hezekiah, David, every one of them had a heart that was after God. And it was what was in their heart that brought revival to the land in which they were in. Josiah's revival was a result of what was in his heart. His heart was tender before the Lord. It was tender for the Lord. One of the great warnings over and over that we find in the Bible, over and over we find the warnings. In fact, Hebrews reiterates an Old Testament principle when it says, it says, in the provocation, they hardened their hearts. I can have a tender heart or I can have a hard heart. Let me tell you what a hardened heart is. A hardened heart is resistant. A hardened heart builds walls around it that says, You can't get at me. A hardened heart, when conviction comes, it rejects conviction. A hardened heart, when the Word of God comes, it's inflexible. A hardened heart is always offended about something. A hardened heart is arrogant. A hardened heart is resistant. A hardened heart is inflexible. It won't change. The Old Testament type we have of this is a man by the name of Naboth. The Bible says he was a churlish man. And the Bible says that his heart was like a heart of stone. In other words, nothing could penetrate it. He was a foolish man, foolish man, foolish man, because his heart was hardened. The other alternative is to have a heart that's pliable, a heart that's tender, that God can speak to and God can speak through, a heart that's moldable, a heart that's shapeable, a heart that when God begins to speak, it's easily received. And I'll tell everyone that's here today, every single person in this house that's here today, we're all going to have a chance to get bitter. Every single human being. And you know what? It's not going to come from the devil. It's going to pass by God. It'll pass by the loving hand of God because God wants us to make a choice. Am I going to get bitter or am I going to get better? God will allow the testing and the trials of life to come my way. And listen, those testings and those trials, they'll either make my heart hard or they'll make my heart pliable. I can allow the trials that come my way. It may be a sickness that has come your way. It may be rejection that has come your way. It may be a business that hasn't worked out. It may be trials in your life that you just say, why am I where I am right now? And I can make a choice that I can stiffen up. I can stiffen up and I can draw cordon walls around my heart until my heart gets steadily harder and harder and harder. Impenetrable to the conviction of God's presence. Unchangeable, unalterable until it's like a stone. Or I can say, oh God, create in me a clean heart. Renew within me a right spirit. I give you my heart, Lord. I'm being tested right now. I'm being tried. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But, Lord, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bow my heart before you. And I'm going to allow you, oh God. I'm going to allow you to work with my heart, oh God. I'm not going to become hardened. I'm going to become tender. Tender. Tender before the Lord. A tender heart is a heart that God can talk to. A tender heart. Notice what David says. He's the king. He's he's the, he's the big man on campus. Big man on campus. He's the big man. But he's a big man that's sinning. The prophet comes into his life and says, you're the man. What does David say? Oh, God. Psalm 51 and 9, hide thy face from my sins, because it's not about anybody else. It's about me and my God. And blot out mine iniquities. Create a clean heart in me, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is a sinning leader. This is later, he's on top of things. He's he the man, he's the man, he's the man. But oh, he knew in the presence of God, I've got to have a tender heart. Create in me a clean heart, a tenderness of heart. Because folks, really, it's all about the heart. We can do all this praise and worship stuff. We can, we can preach all day long until the cows come home. We can do all this churchy stuff. There's a lot of churchy people, churchy people. Church, 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 churchy people. But I'm going to tell you what. What it's going to boil down to, if we're going to have revival, it's going to be what's in the heart. It's what's in the heart. What's in my heart? There's going to be things that come our way that are going to help us to have better hearts. I had, I had a mother. still have a mother. <laughs> still have a mother. My mom was strong. She's a little rough sometimes, too. I was about 16 years old, 15 years old, full of myself. You know, when you're 15, you know everything. The older you get, the more you realize you don't know. And the smarter your parents become. And one day I was pretty full of myself and I was walking through the house, my little five foot three mom, she spun on her heels, she looked at me, she pointed her big bony finger in my face, she said, You know what your problem is? She said, you're a spoiled brat. And you know what? She was right. And I felt myself just like that begin to shrink. God's going to bring people into your life that are going to challenge you. I had a pastor. I thank God for the man of God in my life. I came to God as a teenager. And I was, man, my first year or two in church, I was struggling. I thank God I had a pastor that told me the truth. I was sinning, and my pastor said, you've got to stop doing that. He had the courage to look at me and tell me the truth out of the word of God. And I had an alternative at that point. I'll tell you, my, my struggle was, my struggle was, who's he think he is to tell me that? And you know what God was doing? God was getting that rebellion out of my heart. Because that rebellion would have been there, would have destroyed my life. So I got a choice. When I'm challenged, am I going to be pliable? Am I going to have a tender heart? Am I going to have a tender heart? Thank God that we have youth camps, we have children camps. Come on. Times that our eyes are closed in the presence of God, in altars, praying and crying. I'm grateful for celebrative worship. I'm thankful when we run the aisles. I love that. But I'm going to tell you what, we stand with our hands in the air. That's a good thing. But you know what? There are times that we need to lay with our face in the floor now and then. There's times that we need to prostrate ourselves before the Lord. Because I'm talking about revival is in the heart. It's prayer meetings. It's saying, God, I give you access to my heart. Do you want to talk to me, Lord? I give you access to my heart. I give you access to my innermost being, oh God. Speak to me. I give you my heart. I'm available. Talk to me, oh God. I've asked myself the question before how we have people raised in our churches that are Bible quizzer extraordinaires. Knew the Word of God inside out, upside down, round and round. They could quote it like nothing was business. And yet many of them, they're they're so far from God right now, they're atheists. They're agnostic. How can you know this Bible and become an atheist or agnostic? i tell you what, it's one thing to have it in my mind. But I don't want the Word of God just to be in my mind. I want the Word of God to sink down into my heart. I want the Word in my heart. I want the Word to be in my heart. The psalmist said in Psalm 119 and 10, With my whole heart have I sought Thee. Oh, let me not wander from Thy commandments. With my heart, God, I've sought You. Thy Word have I hid in my mind Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The devil knows the word of God. I don't want to just know the word of God. I want the word of God to get into my heart. I want the word of God to begin to shape and mold my thinking. I want the word of God to be in my heart and for it to begin to change me. Come on, I pray today that not one more young person ever backslides out of this church. Come on. You say, is that realistic? I don't know. It's my hope. I don't want anybody to be lost. But how can young people in our churches be raised on apostolic pews, in apostolic altars, going to apostolic camps, feeling the presence of God, hearing the greatest preaching this side of heaven, and yet walk away from God? The only thing I can surmise is it's one thing to be in the presence. It's another thing that the presence to be in them. It's one thing to be around the Word of God. It's another thing for the Word of God to get in the the heart. Church kids backslide because it doesn't get in their heart. But I'm equally encouraged this morning that we can choose. I want it in my heart. Oh, I want it in my heart. I want it in my heart. I want it in my heart. I want this thing in my heart, not just in my mind, not just what I do. Oh, we're church people. We go to church. Fine, dandy, good, wonderful. But the core purpose is so that it can get in my heart, that it can leak into every part of my being and who I am and what I am, what I dream about, what I desire, my whole life being defined and redefined by this God that I serve. It's in my heart. I'm preaching about revival, river of life. Uh, This is how we have revival. We have revival when it gets into our heart so deep that nothing can deter us from the will of God because it's in our heart. It's in our heart. I was talking to my wife about this the other day and she did she did a good dad Merrick thing. In case you don't know what that means you'll have the greatest thought in the world (laughs) and he will find the weak side of the argument and he'll help you with it. And so we preach about faith, we preach about a lot of these things and so in good form. She said, well, how do you get it in your heart? If it being in the heart is so important, how do you get it in your heart? That's a million-dollar question. That's a great question. Let me to say it like this. If it's going to get in our heart, you know what we've got to do? We've got to open our heart. What does that mean? That means we live in a world, in many cases, that is brutal in a lot of ways. And we learn, the Bible does say, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. You can't just let anything into your heart. You can't let any person into your heart. So we learn to guard ourselves. We learn to be guarded. Maybe you've had brutal situations in life. Maybe you've had abuse in life, and and you learn to to just, I'm going to draw walls around my heart. That's what I'm going to do because I'm never going to let anybody hurt me again. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put walls around my heart, and that's fine. Because sometimes we do need to protect ourselves from abusive people. We don't have to subject ourselves to that. But let me tell you what. When I get in the presence of God, those walls are there. When I get into the presence of God, i got to begin to put walls down. When I come into the house of God and the Word of God is going forward, I've got to bring those walls down. When I get into the presence of God, I've got to say, Okay, Lord, if I get this thing in my heart, I've got to open my heart now. I know it's scary. Can I trust? Can I do that? Let me tell you what. If there's one place that you can trust and one person you can trust, there's a good God. He won't hurt you. He won't abuse you. You can open your heart to God. We open our heart. What does that mean in seasons of worship and in seasons of prayer? This, Come on, it's not about the groove of the tune. I believe it was Lamentations where he said, I will lift up my heart with my hands I lift up my heart with my hands this physical worship is a demonstration of what is happening in me internally there are times we run the aisles and you know what that's great there are other times we need to find a place to bury ourselves in the carpet somewhere and just have a good old talk with Jesus a good old talk with Jesus. God, I'm opening my heart. Here's where I'm at, Lord. I open my heart to you right now. Is there any secret sins in my life? Is there anything, God, you need to talk to me about right now? Or there's some things that I need to bring out in the open and I need to bring to you right now, Lord. The greatest things I can do is open my heart to God. Revival comes into an open heart. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you that a broken heart is the secret weapon of the intercessor and strong soldier of Christ. Notice, Psalm 34 and 18. The Lord is nigh unto them. Who is he nigh unto? He's nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of contrite spirit. Isaiah 66 and 2. He said, for all those things hath mine hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord. Notice, but to this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. I'm done. That's why in the presence of God, I can't just be a statue. I Can't just be a librarian. There are times I need to open my heart up to God. Open my heart up to God. I'm talking desperate prayer. Desperate prayer because Josiah had a revival, and do you know why? It was the tenderness of his heart. Very candidly, that's the great challenge because some leaders, to get where they are, they got to be strong and they got to be tough. But when I get in the presence of God, I don't have to be strong. I don't have to be tough. He's the boss. I'm the applesauce. He's the king. I'm the servant. I open myself up to him. And all of a sudden, a fresh wind of revival begins to blow because someone opened their heart to God. My last scripture, my last scripture. If you'd like to stand, you can. 2 Kings 23 and 24. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits, 2 Kings 23 and 24, and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations which were spied in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law. He said, now we got to do what God's word shows us. Which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Notice 25, the testimony. And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses. Neither after him arose there any like unto him. I'm talking about revival, River of Life. Revival. It comes in the heart. Let's lift our hands to God right now. Let's reach out to Him. Why don't you do that in your own personal way? Your own personal way. Just you and Jesus. We need revival. There's a season of refreshing and renewal that God is bringing to His church, and this is the vehicle that He does it through. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We open our hearts today, Oh God.